We are wrapping up our series called Who Could Be Against Us This Morning. We are finishing out in the most important chapter in the entire Bible, and that is Romans 8. And next week, I will be out of town, and Jacob will be leading us in a much more kid-friendly sermon series. Sermon on the Mount, we are going to be calling that Summer on the Mount. So for the rest of summer, besides Father's Day, we've got to do something special for our dads in the house. We will be in the Sermon on the Mount, but today, today we get to finish out Romans 8 with a bang, with some power. I am extremely excited about this. And so to start this off, I'd like to start off in something I'm not extremely excited about, and that is a football team called the New Orleans Saints. Have you heard of them before? All right, boo, all right. Whoever said that, we're friends, okay. Oh man, there's only really two fan bases in the NFL that scare me. That is um, the Oakland Raiders, that are now the Las Vegas Raiders. And if you class things up by moving to Las Vegas, that really says something about your football program, okay? The second fan base is the New Orleans Saints. And these people are scary. Um, these people went from the Aints to the Saints. You remember back in the day where they could not win a game to save their lives. They put bags over their heads and they'd show up to the stadium and they would cheer on, cheer on the New Orleans Aints. Well, today, I would like to start off our message looking at something that the saints fully embody. Win or lose Sunday after Sunday, even if there's not a football game taking place, they take part in something together as saints nation. And that is a chant. That is an anthem that they say all the time. And I want you to help me out with this, but I'll, I'll start, I'll lead the way. This chant goes, who dat, and this is really just swell English here, okay? I mean, this is definitely less than a fifth grade reading level, but it's easy for me because that's about where I'm at. So, who dat? Okay, you ready. Okay, all right. I was going to practice, but we're ready. Okay, so when I say who dat, you say who that. Who, I'm sorry, who that is not part of this. Who dat after me, all right? So, who dat? Who dat? Who does say they're going to beat them saints, okay? Every saints fan. God bless you, Ralph. <laughs> Every saints fan says, who that, who that, who that, who that, who that say they're going to beat them saints all the time. Any saints fan I've ever known, I used to work at UPS, there was a lot of saints fans that came in that I worked with after Hurricane Katrina, and I heard this all the time. And so there was like a war going on between the Eagles fans and the Saints fans and the Cowboys fans. We were really secure in who we are. We're used to losing for a long time now, so we were good. <laughs> so who dat, who dat, who dat, who dat, who dat say they're going to beat them Saints? When it comes to the New Orleans Saints, the answer is easy, and that's everybody. Everybody going to beat them Saints especially if it's late in the playoffs and they just need to choke, okay? Certainly under the leadership, um, maybe it's the spiritual leadership of Drew Brees. I'm not sure what it is, but they have gone further. They have won more games. But let's talk about the other saints in the house this morning. Let's talk about the people that are sitting in these seats. Let's talk about this church, people that have gone from sinners to being justified so that one day we will be glorified, and now we are no longer known as sinners, but we are known as saints. Who that? Who'd I say they're going to beat them saints? That's nobody. Nobody going to beat these saints. And that's a promise. And that is a promise in Jesus that we will unpack today in Romans 8, 31 
through 39. We will start with 31 and 32. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Turn them on. Scroll there. We're going to dig in. Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? First point this morning is that no one, no one, church family, no one can be against us. Why can no one be against us? The answer is simple. No one can be against us because God is for us. Who is us? The us that God is for are those that love God. It is the foreknown. It is the predestined that we talked about last week. It is those who God calls into relationship with himself. It is those that God justifies so that one day he can glorify. And what does it mean that no one can be against us? It's one thing to say, all right, nobody can, get, can be against me, but if we don't actually grasp what that means, we will leave this place with a concept that we can't put in the application. We will come into contact with people that are actually coming against us time after time, day after day, and become disillusioned because, once again, we think that this thing called Christianity, that the gospel is going to be this life enhancer instead of this life preserver. So what does it mean when no one, what does it mean that no one can come against us? It means that no one, no one can succeed against us. It doesn't mean that they can't hurt us. It doesn't mean that they can't stand in our way. It certainly doesn't mean that they cannot take our lives. It certainly does not mean that they cannot make our lives miserable. It means that in the end, no one can be against us because no one can succeed against us. And what a success for the Christian. No one succeeding against you looks like nobody keeping you from glory. And glory is the ultimate victory for us. We've been saved from our sins. We are being made more and more like Jesus every day, and one day we will be in the presence and in the love of God for an eternity, and that is when we will be glorified. That is when we reach glory, and there is no one who can stand against you, and there is no one that can keep you from that. We talked a lot about Paul over the course of Romans 8, who he was, what he went through. We touched briefly on the things that he went through last week, talking about his suffering. And I think in order to really move on and get the full effect of everything that Paul went through as he is writing this, everything he went through before he is writing this, we need to look at 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. This will not be on your screen. I'll read it to you. If you did a Awanas, if you did a Bible drill, you can flip to it real quick. Or if you have a phone, you can cheat. All right. It's not tactile, but it'll work. It says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews these, the 40 lashes less one. Five times he was beaten like Jesus. 39 lashes on the back. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. All my kids in the house, Paul was floating in the ocean on some driftwood for a day and a night on frequent journeys 
and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. As Paul was going about the Mediterranean world, as he is setting up these churches, as he is planting them, as people that did not know Jesus are hearing the gospel and giving their lives to him, he is undergoing suffering. He is going through the worst of the worst. I think a lot of times we think of suffering, we think of ridicule, of persecution, of people coming against us as a setback of we are trying to run this race that Paul describes, and they are constantly sticking their foot out and trying to trip us as we are running toward the finish line. Maybe it's as as extreme as someone tries to take your life and the race is ended short. I don't want us to think anymore that in this race that it is people trying to keep us from the finish line, but every time someone comes against you, instead of thinking of it as someone tripping you up, as someone keeping you from getting to the finish line, I want you to look at it as a believer that clings tight to the Lord, that in their suffering goes to Jesus. It was when we undergo persecution, when we undergo hardship and trials, that instead of putting their foot out to trip us, that person is just getting behind us and pushing us even closer to the finish line. And what is the worst thing that they can do against us in this life, on this planet? The worst thing that they can do to a believer is take our lives. And that seems like a terrible thing, but for a believer, that is victory, baby. That is taking the finish line, and that is moving it one step in front of you. And so something that we see as horrible, something that we see as the end of the road for us is just the beginning of an eternity. They cannot keep us from glory. And so anytime they come against us, they are only accelerating our pace in the race. They are only moving the finish line a little bit closer to us. If Paul suffered, we will suffer. If we are sticking our heads out of the trenches in the spiritual realm, if we are actually doing with our lives what Jesus has called us to do, we will at some point be put in the crosshairs of the enemy. And he will attack, and it will hurt. But in suffering, we cling to Jesus. There's nothing that can keep us from the love of God. We see in verse 32, Paul writes that all things are ours. God has everything at his disposal. He has endless, limitless resources. I think a lot of times, as believers, we get into this survival mindset of, I only am going to ever have just as much as I need, or I am not able to ask God of these things because I just don't deserve it, or there's no way that he would ever give it to me. I'm just barely going to make it. I'm going to struggle through life time after time after time. But as a believer, we do not operate in a survival mindset. We operate in an abundance mindset because God spares nothing for the expense of his children. God already did the hardest thing that he could do. Why would, he, why would he not do the easiest thing that he can do? The hardest thing that God had to do was give the life of his one and only son because he loved you and he loved me so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. 
If he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us, why would he not also listen to our prayers? Why would he not also answer our prayers and give us the provision that we need in order to become more like Jesus? And this is not the prosperity gospel that I'm standing up here preaching today. I'm not saying pray for a Ferrari and God is going to give you a Ferrari. But if God does give you a Ferrari, you should donate it to the church. Okay? <laughs> I've never seen it happen, but I think it would be sweet for ministry. <laughs> I'm saying that God will always give us exactly what we need. He will give us exactly what we need to become more and more like Jesus as we are on this road of sanctification. He will give us exactly what we need as his children so that we can live according to his will. He will give us exactly what we need so that we can one day make it to glory and spend an eternity with him. We can think of it like this. I went to Disneyland one time as a sixth grader, and if you go to Disneyland as a sixth grader, uh, you're probably going a little bit more ungrateful than you should be. Um, looking at Disneyland and Disney World now as a parent, I'm thinking like, man, that was an awesome thing for my mom to do right there. So let's go on a trip to Disneyland. You know what? No, let's go to Disney World. I hear Disney World's better. Uh, it's not? Okay, we'll go to Disneyland. That's fine. Um, it's closer anyways. It'll save us money. Awesome. Okay. So we're going to Disneyland. Um, change of plans, last second. Um, because there's a change of plans, now the flights are more expensive, okay? Because we're not going to drive there. Uh, we could, but we're not going to. Um, yeah, so we're flying there. We've got to get our plane tickets. Not only do we have to get our plane tickets, once we land on the plane in now California, definitely not Florida, too humid there, um, we are going to need a rental car, okay? So that is another expense. Um, once you get your rental car, you're going to need to then drive to the hotel, okay? And then since it's been a long day, you probably need to get some rest before you go to Disneyland in the morning. You go, you get some dinner, you wake up, you get some breakfast, and then you drive to the park, and you've already paid the incredible expense to get into the park. These are four major expenses that have already taken place, and I'm sure that dinner and breakfast were not cheap either. This is California we're talking about now. And then you get to the park, and you've already paid the money, and you have your tickets. And they say, all right, welcome to Disneyland. It's going to be $15 for parking. And at this point, you're like, you know what? I've spent way too much money on this trip. We're, we're going to go back to the hotel that's 10 miles away, and me and my family are going to walk all the way to Disneyland. $15 to park? That's absolutely ridiculous. I've already paid, paid for the plane. I've paid for the rental car. I've paid for the hotel room. I've paid for dinner. I've paid for breakfast. And I'm probably about to spend a whole lot more on souvenirs because my kids are with me. What parent would say no? What parent that loves their children is going to say, you know what, $15 is way too much after I just paid all of this, all these other fees so that we could get into Disneyland, so that we could have this joyous, incredible experience as a family. Husbands, I'm going to tell you right now, if you say no to that parking fee, you're probably not going to talk to your wife the rest of the trip, okay? Your kids might forgive you, especially when they see Mickey Mouse, but no good parent is going to deny their child of a parking fee so that you can just go on into the park. 
And God is the exact same way. Why would God deny us of what we need in order to become more like Jesus? Why would God deny us of what we need to become more like him and to follow his will and to one day make it to glory? Why would he deny us of any of that when he has already sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin? It makes absolutely zero sense. We have a God who loves us. We have a God whose resources are limitless because we have a God that is for us. And so when Paul asks, what then shall we say? We should say that God is for us. Nothing can stand against him. Romans 8, 33-34 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who can be against us? No one can be against us. Second point today, who can charge us? No one can charge us. As believers, no one can charge us. And again, it is crucial that we understand what this means just as much as it is crucial for us to understand what it means. No one can be against us. We need to understand that no one can charge us. This does not mean that people cannot accuse you. This means that when people accuse you, that they cannot ever make it stick. They can accuse you from sunup till sundown, but not a single one of those accusations will stick against you. And why is that? Because it is God who has justified you if you are in relationship with him. And God is the highest judge at the highest court. This is like someone in the Supreme Court making a decision that is in your favor, and then someone in a lower, lower, lower county-level court saying, you know what, I disagree with that. And you know what, actually, here's my accusation against you, and, and blah, 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 read me the rights, try to throw me in jail. None of that is going to take place because a much, much, much higher judge has said the complete opposite. And in Jesus, God has justified you. Your sins are no more. They are forgiven. They are taken care of because of Jesus on the cross. And so no one can make it stick against you because no one can condemn you, which is what brings us back to the beginning of chapter 8. We are not condemned. And why are we not condemned? Why can no one make the charges stick when it comes to us? There's four reasons. Four amazing reasons. And the first one is that Jesus died. And that condemnation that accusation that they are hurling against you, Jesus took that on the cross when he died for our sin. Second thing, Jesus was raised from the dead. You cannot go and find the grave. You cannot find a tombstone with Jesus' name on it. If you do, it is fake because Jesus rose from the dead. Death did not defeat him. Jesus defeated sin. Jesus defeated death. So the accusation that was on you, the sin that was on you, Jesus took to the cross and then three days later, he rose victorious from the grave, taking care of that sin, taking care of those accusations. So he was victorious from the dead. And now, Jesus is at the right hand of God. He has taken the highest place of honor. And if God honors Jesus like that, why would God not also honor the work of Jesus in you? When people start hurling accusations, when people start accusing you of your sin, of all the places that you have gone wrong, of who you are that you are really not, Jesus is staring, sitting at the right hand of the Father saying, nope, not them. I died for that. Father, you sent me 
Nope, that's a lie too. That's not who they are. I died for that. Nope, that's certainly not them. I died for that. And the fourth thing is that Jesus is interceding for us through prayer. And this is insanely powerful. We see that Jesus prays for us in John 17, 9 and 15 through 17. Not on the screen today. Jesus prays for the elect. And Jesus prays for them to be conformed to him. Right now, as a believer in this room, Jesus is praying for you. That you would be protected. That you would become more like him. Luke 22, 31 through 32, Jesus prays for Simon before his denial. So as children of God, even if we are about to deny Jesus himself, Jesus is interceding for us through prayer. I think we operate a lot in life thinking, man, how great would it be if I could do this? We operate in life without the confidence of having Jesus praying for us. And I think when we realize that everything we do that is inside the will of the Father, that Jesus backs up with prayer, will go through, will be made complete, will come to a finish. Mission accomplished. But instead, we walk through life as defeated Christians, as people who are running the race and who keep having people stick their feet out in front of us, try to trip us, keep trying to get in our way, And that is not the case. Jesus is praying for us. We can have confidence in all things to do all things for the Father. And so as we live our lives on mission, as we love God, as we love people, let us have confidence going into every situation as an ambassador for Jesus, his representation here on earth, that he has my back in prayer. I've got the wind at my back. I'm in full stride. We are going to do this thing. This ministry is going to be accomplished. This person is going to be loved. This gospel is going to be preached and presented. And this person has a chance to make a decision based off a decision that God has made for them. Jesus is praying for us. Let's act like it. Let's not cower away. Let's not be scared. Let's not be timid. Who can be against us, church? Nobody. Who can make the charge stick? Nobody. Who's praying for us? Heck yeah, he is. Thank you, Jesus. Romans 8, 35 through 39. We'll close with this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Third and final point this morning. Take this home. Take it to the bank. It'll cash every single time. Is nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus. Jesus is in heaven right now, and he is interceding for us so that nothing on earth, nothing in the physical realm, nothing in the spiritual realm, nothing in the emotional realm can stand in the way of God's love for us. And what does Paul say cannot stand in the way? That is tribulation. 
that is distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and the sword. And we see that Paul experiences every single one of these things based off of the scripture we read in 2 Corinthians earlier. He experiences all of these things, but the sword. And so this is written from a perspective from a Christian who has been there, who has done that. Not somebody who's writing a book about something that they have never done, but someone who is in the midst of it in their ministry. As their ministry is, the fire of it is trying to be put out by the enemy. So as believers, can we experience these things? The trials, the tribulation, the distress, the famine, the persecution, the danger, the sword, the nakedness. Can we experience these things as believers, as God's children? And I'm sorry to say, the answer is yes. We absolutely can, and we absolutely will experience these things as believers. But I'm not sorry, because none of these things can keep us from the love of Jesus. Absolutely none of these things can keep us from God's love. Verse 37, we'll go back to that. It says, no, it cannot separate you. No, in all things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so we can read this and we say, okay, I can be more than a conqueror in these things, but if I'm still experiencing these things as a person that loves God, that doesn't seem just, that doesn't seem fair. Why are believers going through this stuff? And we can take that back to this verse that Paul kind of references as you're reading anything that Paul writes every now and then. It's like this little light bulb goes off in his head and he remembers this scripture. And so he's writing this letter to the church in Rome and then boom, he remembers a psalm. In this instance, Paul remembers Psalm 44, verses 20 through 22, and he just throws it right in the middle of this letter, and it goes, and in its full context, really gives us an idea that as believers, are we supposed to expect this kind of suffering? And the answer is still yes. So Psalm 44, 20 through 22, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? So this is God's people saying that, Yahweh, we love you. Yahweh, we follow you. We will not reach our hands out to these other gods. We will not worship them because surely you would discover this and we love you and you love us. For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, for your sake, God, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So as believers, will we come into contact? Will we have interaction with suffering? Yes, we absolutely will. Will there be hardship? Will there be trials? Will there be temptations? Yes, there absolutely will. But it is crucial for us that we do not see this as punishment. In these things, we'll take it back to the more than conquerors verse. In these things, we are more than conquerors. If we were just conquerors of these things that come against us, if we were just conquerors of this suffering, you know what conquerors do? Have you ever seen the movie Gladiator? Okay, nobody's seen the movie Gladiator. Awesome. All right. Hopefully none of the kids have. If you look at the gladiators in the arena, if you look at what a conqueror is, a conqueror is someone who cuts down the opponent. Any adversary that comes against them, they cut them down. They take the life out of them. But we are not conquerors. As suffering comes towards us, we do not just cut it down and say, you will not have any effect on me. But what Paul says here is, as believers, 
we are more than conquerors. This can be, also be translated as we are hyper conquerors or we are super conquerors. So we do not just cut things down as believers and they have no effect on us, but they die before us. And not only do they die, but they come back from the dead and it is now their job to serve us in God. We see in Romans 8, 28. And this is where the peace, this is where the comfort in the midst of the discomfort comes from. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, God is working everything out for the good of those who love him. God is working things out for the good of his children, whom he loves. He is working all of these things together for our good. And so because of that, we have to accept the fact that there will be hard times. That just because I follow Jesus, just because I made a decision to run after him with my life, I'm not swallowing a pill that keeps me safe from any persecution from any suffering that is to come. But I am not only going to encounter it, but I'm going to embrace it. And when I encounter it, I embrace it because I know that God is going to use this to make me more like Jesus. That God is going to use this in my life to propel me closer to glory. And so because of these things, we need to realize that he is in control. And we need to trust God with the control that he has over our lives. We need to realize over and over again that we are a part of his bigger story, not the other way around. And even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of the trials and the pain, that we benefit from what he is doing. Believers, nothing can get in the way of God's love for you in Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross Going back to verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. If you're a worrier in this room and you're constantly worried about what is to come and you are full of anxiety and that anxiety leads you into stress and that stress leads you into depression, I need you to read that again. Nor things present, nor things to come. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. God is surely going to work out even the bad things together for your good in Jesus. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can look at this like a, like a stream, like a river. Now we don't have a lot of those here in Arizona, but basically they're just these bodies of water that have land on both sides of them. All right, and based off the amount of water that is coming down from the mountains or that's coming downstream uh, determines the power of the stream. And if that stream didn't have any banks, if there were no boundaries, no borders, it would just go everywhere. But there are banks, and it is coming fast. So I want you to think that the water is coming from this way to this way, and God is on this side, and he is sending his love represented by this river down to us who are right here. And there is nothing because of the power and the might of this river that can get in the way of God's love flowing downstream to you. Well, what about famine? What if I don't eat? Maybe that's a tree that falls over the river, and before it starts diverting any water, God sweeps it away 
and the power of God's love and the power of that stream take that tree into the river and it washes it down. What about anything else? What about somebody accuses me? What if I get worried? What if I get stressed? What if I get anxious? What if I've allowed that to build up for quite some time? I want you to realize that as this little family of beavers comes along the side of this river and they think, man, this looks like a great place to put a home. And they start building their home and they start to dam up the flow of the water and it starts to divert itself from going downstream and it starts to slow down to a trickle. God says, no, not my child. That's not going to happen. Nothing is going to separate my love from them. Nothing is going to keep them from experiencing the love that I have for them in Jesus. And then that family of beavers is suddenly homeless. And they're so sad because now they don't have a place to live. Nothing is going to keep God's love from getting to you. You are downstream from the strongest river that there has ever been, and it will never run out of water. So what do we do? If no one can come against us, if no one can make a charge stick against us. If nothing can separate us from God's love, what do we do? We live in victory. We live in victory out of that love. If no one can succeed against it, if no one can charge us, if no one can separate us in God's love, then we have victory, and that victory for us as believers comes through Jesus and his work on the cross. And this is not empty victory. This is not all I do is win, 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 no matter what, okay? You can bump it as long as you want, Grady. I see you laughing over there. But in the end, any victory we can bring for ourselves is empty. But this victory is in Jesus. This victory lasts because this victory ushers us into true life in Jesus. And with this victory, we can love God. With this victory, we can love God each other. With this victory, we can love our enemies. With this victory, we can raise and lead our families to do the same. In this victory, we can make disciples of our children. We can make disciples of our friends, of our loved ones, of our acquaintances. We can see them go from death into life through this victory of Jesus on the cross. We can live obediently. As a church, we can become established. We don't have to just be the church plant that is in Asante and Desert Oasis. We can become an established body of Jesus. We can be a church that meets the needs of the community. And we can be a church that plants other churches to do the exact same thing. So because Jesus has had the victory, no one, no one, no one can stand against us. Let's live like that is the case. Let's pray.